This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Happy Friday, everyone. We made it. We made it through another week. But before you check out for the weekend, catch up with us on the top local news stories that made headlines this week. Chicago's runoff election for mayor is heating up. The runoff election in Chicago's race for mayor is less than four weeks away. Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson faced off in their first forum since last week's election. Controversy wasn't enough to change the minds of Chicago's rank and file when it came to choosing union leadership. Union members have re-elected John Cantanzara as president of the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. And speaking of union news, Field Museum workers are organizing. Workers want better pay, benefits, and job security. The Field Museum says it'll begin contract negotiations with a union soon. Lots to dive into, and I can't do it alone. Here to help is Nader Issa, who covers education for the Chicago Sun-Times. Aaron Gettinger, reporter for the Hyde Park Herald. And also Julie Bosman, Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times. Let's start with the mayoral race. We're less than a month away from the runoff. Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson faced off in their first one-on-one debate this week. Both candidates were questioned about their political leanings. Let's hear what was brought up about Vallis in the NBC5 debate. In 2009, you said in an interview, you thought of yourself as more of a Republican. In fact, let's listen. Someday you were thinking of running for Cook County Board President in the Republican side. On the Republican side. So are you now officially a Republican? Well, I'll probably um, register as a Republican. But you don't in, register in, in Illinois, the next right? primary. You don't register. Well, you, you, you have to enter the primary. You have to take a primary ballot. Right, you have to take You're a saying you would take a, you would take a Republican I would take ballot. a Republican primary You ballot. think of yourself as a Republican. I'm more of a Republican than Democrat. So Paul Vallis went on to say he's a lifelong Democrat and that he's always been on the ballot mm-hmm. as a Democrat. Julie, three-quarters of Chicago voters, we know, are Democrats. It's a very liberal city that we live in. Our, our Democratic voters going to have second thoughts, you think, about his conservative tendencies? Well, I think certainly a lot of them will. Um, I think that they will see some of the statements that he's made about his political positions. They'll see some of the things that he has liked on Twitter and on Facebook. I think that they will see that he has pretty much gone as far to the right as he can and still calling himself a Democrat. Um, The advantage for Vallis here is that Brandon Johnson is slightly too far to the left for a lot of voters. So I think a lot of voters will be looking for that middle and so far not really finding it. Mm. Aaron, what are your thoughts? I just can't make sixes and sevens of the fact that, I mean, there's candidates of both ideological uh, wings right now. Um, And I think so to some degree, certainly there's lots of conservative uh, neighborhoods in Chicago. And I think that that Ideology will find a voice this time around. It's a weird election. I think we can all um, agree about that. Uh, That's a good word so for it. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> Nader? I think it's going to be tough to for both candidates to sell themselves. I think a big 
um, piece of this election so far has been racial politics. Yeah. And we saw a big chunk of the South and West Sides black voters voted for Lori Lightfoot. And I think that case is there to be made for both voters, uh, both candidates, excuse me, yeah. to win that vote. And it's, it's going to depend. I think you have a lot of conservative thinking voters in those communities. They're not a monolith. Um, but you also have a lot of voters who want progressive policies, support the teachers union and support Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson's left leaning views also came under attack, to your point. Uh, let's listen. Mr. Johnson, you <laughs> attended an event in 2020. It was called We Don't Call Police. And that same year, you said it was a political goal to defund the police. Here is what you said. The president of the United States, the former president of the United States, I'm sorry, President Barack Obama took it one step further as well and basically said that the, the, the effort of the defund police movement lost an audience because of, of that slogan, I guess is what, what he's calling it, which, which I don't look at it as a slogan. It's an actual real political goal. So I'm going to stick with you for another moment here, Nader. Johnson responded uh, to that and saying he had no in- he has no intention to defund the police. Uh, he promises to hire 200 more detectives. How comfortable, though, do you think Chicagoans will be electing a mayor who once said that defunding the police is a political goal? I think it's a tough position he's finding himself in because you have a lot of people in communities that are hardest hit by violence who look at it and say, we are not feeling safe right now. Mm-hmm. And how would less police help? And I, by the same token, I think you have a lot of progressives and a lot of um, sort of ideologues who think, well, policing so far hasn't helped. And it, it's just a tough position for himself uh, to, to find himself in where he's trying to appeal to his base and the progressives who have gotten him, gotten him here so far yeah. while also winning some of the moderate vote that might not say, why get rid of a police department? What else are we going to, practically speaking, tomorrow find ourselves uh, with help? Well, let me open it up to, to the floor here. Do, do you all think that we're going to be hearing this Brandon Johnson soundbite in Vallis campaign commercials maybe over the next month? What do you think, Julie? I think that he has become associated with defund in a way that will not help his candidacy in large parts of the city. You know, the political winds have shifted on defund the police since 2020. Um, I spent a good part of my week um, just talking to voters on the south and west sides about who they're going to vote for um, when it uh, and thinking about crime and policing and what they would like to see. And what I heard over and over again is I don't want the defund guy. I don't want someone who's going to take mm. police away from the community. What a lot of black voters in some of the most hard hit neighborhoods when it comes to crime want is something different. They don't want fewer police officers. They want smarter policing. They don't want to be harassed and discriminated against. Mm. They want officers to be more visible in the community. Um, they want more detectives. So that lines up with what Brandon Johnson is saying. But yeah. defund is not something that is widely appealing right now. So I think that will hurt him. It's probably good that he shifted away from that messaging. What do you think, Aaron? I I think defund the police rhetoric is going to be the albatross around a lot of Democrats next for decades from what they've said in 2020 on uh, for good or bad. You know, I look at neighborhoods like Hyde Park and Andersonville, both of which were neighborhoods where Johnson did really well Mm -hmm. um, in the first round, relatively speaking, in terms of how many people actually won in this election or got votes in this election. 
there are homeowners, otherwise liberal, you know, maybe even progressive identifying homeowners who are freaked out about crime uh, in neighboring Woodlawn or Uptown, but also just going on in their neighborhoods, period. Yeah. Um, and while I don't think that uh, Vallis is going to win either of those neighborhoods, I will be interested to see what level of support he can get in these more affluent uh, neighborhoods with uh, you know proportion of residents who are concerned about crime. Yeah. Well, Julie, the New York Times and other national media we know have been giving this race a lot of coverage, right? There's a lot of attention yes. on Chicago's mayor race. Why do you think it's getting so much national attention? Well, uh, I think that it dovetails with a couple of national trends. I think that um, in New York City um, in 2021, um, coming out of the pandemic, there was a mayoral election that was largely um, revolving around crime. It also happened last year in Los Angeles with um, the mayor's race there. Karen Bass um, won over Rick Caruso, who ran on a platform much like Paul Vallis is. Uh, you know, we're going to take care of crime. You know, he was the law and order guy. Mm-hmm. Now, he did lose, but he came within 10 points of Karen Bass. So when we saw what happened in Chicago last week, there were certainly a lot of questions of, OK, well, is this a crime election? Is that the issue that is going to drive voters to the polls? And what can other mayors in other big cities learn from this? Yeah. Vallis and Johnson each said the other candidate is making race an issue, something you kind of alluded alluded to earlier, Nader. There's a real battle, Aaron, it seems, going on for getting support from black voters, right? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. What are you hearing about what Vallis and Johnson need to do in order to actually capture votes from black Chicagoans? I mean, I think black voters, to some degree, are voting by not voting at all. Turnout rates were really, really, really down in much of the South and West sides. Um, the person I'd really be interested in speaking to about this are older women like uh, Pat Dowell or uh, Jeanette Hale- Taylor in the 20th Ward just to see what they want to do to increase turnout for their endorsed candidate, who is Brandon Johnson. Um, it's also interesting to me the dynamic that Brandon Johnson's a West Sider um, and uh, has never ran an election on the South side before, yeah. um, where a great number of votes that he needs to win this election are located. Yeah, what are your thoughts, Nader? It's a big. It's been a big uh, um, piece of the race so far. It's going to continue to be a big piece. I think one part of it is also the Hispanic vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stacey Davis Gates yesterday, our Franz Spielman talked to her, and that campaign, Brandon Johnson's campaign, is really counting on Chewy Garcia's uh, endorsement. And at the end of the day, he he was the. Um, fourth biggest vote getter ahead of Willie Wilson, who is now backing Paul Vallis. And so that's um, playing into the racial politics. That's a big piece of it, too. Yeah. Aaron, uh, defeated mayoral candidate uh, state rep Cam Buckner has his own suggestions for how to get more people to vote. What is he proposing? Ranked choice voting, uh, which is now the law in uh, New York City, San Francisco, Oakland, um, a number of other Major cities in the United States, he wants to file, he wants to pass legislation in Springfield that would allow Illinois municipalities to conduct their local elections in this way if they would want to. Evanston is doing it as well, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. That is correct. Uh, Julia, I wonder how Illinois would definitely make national headlines if we lowered the voting age to 16, wouldn't we? Because that's also something that Buckner is uh, proposing. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine? Um, well, 
I mean, I think that um, certainly that would get a lot of headlines. Um, I mean, ranked choice voting as well, like always seems like a good idea. It's obviously been pulled off in some really big cities, but it is so hard for voters to understand. I have never seen a paragraph that explains it clearly. And I think at a moment when we're worried about voters feeling disenfranchised with turnout rates in municipal elections in the 30s, uh, I think there's a real risk of introducing a new system mm-hmm. that seems really confusing to the average voter. Well, you're in luck. We did a great explainer segment on ranked choice voting. I need to read it. Right Listen. here on Reset. So if you check out your podcast feed, uh, you'll you'll see that, that episode and it'll break things down in 15 minutes or less. Um, <laughs> all right. So I want to look at the role that unions are playing in this race. Both candidates vowed to remain independent of their biggest backers. So Val has promised to hold police accountable. Johnson said... He'd no longer be a member of the Chicago Teachers Union. Nader, are voters going to feel confident of their independence? Are they going to buy that? I, I think right now the, the bigger question is being posed to Brandon Johnson because he is a CTU member, has worked for them for the past decade. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the same questions asked of Paul Vallis, and he's getting just as much money from big backers in the business communities not as much from the FOP. They don't have the same type of political structure that the CTU does. But it is going to be a question for people. And I think Brandon Johnson's answer the other day in, in the NBC5 mayoral debate, he said that he would resign from the CTU. He would no longer be a member and he would shift his priority to the, the fiscal responsibility of the city. Yeah, And I, I think that's something that he's going to have to continue to make the case for, because I think a lot of voters right now are seeing him as, okay, the CTU is going to be in charge of the city. And for whatever reason, the same isn't being said about Paul Vallis, even though he's getting big numbers from similar sources on the other side, too. All right. So sticking with this topic of endorsements, uh, we're seeing big names get behind these candidates. Just this morning, Massachusetts Senator and former presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren endorsed Brandon Johnson. Julie, do you think this race is important enough for the Democratic Party, that we're going to see more politicians at this national level making endorsements? I think we probably will. I mean, uh, an endorsement from Elizabeth Warren will certainly um, hold some appeal among a lot of progressive voters That's in Chicago. Huge. Yeah, I think it I think it matters. Um, you know, I I don't think it will necessarily matter in terms of getting people to the votes. You know, I think you can or to the polls, you can look at the big national figures and say, okay, well, what is, um, you know, Jesse Jackson's endorsement doing here um, versus, say, um, Walter Burnett? You know, are you going to look at the local um, alderman who might actually have more of an organization and getting people to the polls? Um, But I do think that when you look at the national political figures, for voters who are really undecided, it, it could sway them one way or the other. Well, speaking of those local endorsements, Aaron, let's let's walk through a couple more that came in this week. Former mayoral candidate Willie Wilson threw his support behind Vallis. Any surprises there, though? No surprise, but the man certainly has a lot of cachet, and I think it's going to manifest in votes for him. How important is support from Willie Wilson? I mean, it's relative. How many votes did Willie Wilson get in the first round of the primary? But there is a constituency of black voters in Chicago who for whom he speaks and uh, who support him whenever he runs for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So after they'll come out um, to vote for this candidate in the second round. But I do think that it means something. Yeah. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle also threw 
her support behind Brandon Johnson. How significant is that endorsement, Nader? I'm not really sure because you saw how badly she lost in 2019. And people then and for always, I mean, she's been a 40-year career politician, have associated her with the Democratic machine. And Mm -hmm. that's a big reason why she lost. She was associated with Ed Burke in 2019 during the race. And it's tough to tell. Same thing with the Elizabeth Warren endorsement. It was sort of expected. She came and stood on the picket lines with the CTU in 2019, big-time supporter of progressive politics and the CTU. And it's almost like the people you would think are going to endorse him are endorsing him. And that's not going to be the key for him winning this race. I agree with Nader, but I do think that Tony Brackwinkle has a lot of pull with a certain kind of voter on the south side on the lakefront. Um, her fourth ward political organization is still really strong, especially compared to a lot of other ones in mm-hmm. Chicago. Um, but again, yeah, I think people are listening to who they're doing, but these aren't even you know any surprises and that kind of stuff. And to what degree it's going to affect turnout, I don't really know. Let's look at some of the endorsements in the business community, Julie. I'm talking billionaire Ken Griffin, first of all, who left Chicago for Miami, as we know, but He's still interested in our politics. What's he saying? Well, for someone who left this city and state with so much drama, he's still in it, even though he's in still Florida. quite active. He just can't stop talking about Chicago. Um, but I think that um, Ken Griffin voicing support for um, Paul Vallis is pretty widely expected. Um, the kind of funny thing is that after leaving for Florida, um, after the you know politics of Illinois and politics of Chicago moved so much to the left that he felt really isolated, um, now he may get a mayor um, in his former city who actually would be the kind of mayor that he wants as, as far as a Democrat would go. Um, you know, Vallis is obviously very pro-business. He says that he's going to be the mayor who will lure businesses back to the city and make it a comfortable place for um, corporations and for businesses. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting that at this moment, um, uh, Ken Griffin said what he did. Yeah. Well, one endorsement that's come under fire is a powerful, outgoing 44th Ward Alderman Tom Tunney's support of Vallis. Tunney's Chicago's first openly gay alderman. He backed Vallis on February 1st, and he recorded a campaign ad endorsement in front of the center on Halstead. Let's listen. Paul Vallis has been a passionate ally to our community for decades with a track record of significant contributions to the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement that goes back to the early 90s. But Aaron, not everyone sees Paul Vallis as a, quote, passionate ally of the LGBTQ community, do they? Certainly not. There was that very large uh, press conference this week with a lot of LGBTQ political figures that denounced Vallis and came out in support of uh, Brandon Johnson, including, I'll note, former House Majority Leader Greg Harris, who was kind of the longest serving uh, person and someone who was actually around in gay politics, as was Tunney, obviously, in the early 1990s. Yeah. Yeah, there's a division, seriously. So we looked at how unions are impacting the mayor's race. We're going to take a look now at some other union issues. Field Museum staff have joined the growing number of employees voting to unionize. Julie, support for unions is exploding all over the country, right? Uh, It it really is, especially in places like Chicago, which has always been a labor town and labor unions remain very popular among Chicago voters. Um, So this is a trend that a lot of labor experts had predicted a few years ago or longer, that with the um, 
demise of a lot of blue collar unions, white collar unions would be emerging. And you could argue that that's what's happening with the Field Museum, Mm -hmm. um, which had a pretty overwhelming vote in favor to unionize. Yeah, 175 to 66. Yeah, which is, um, you know, pretty clear outcome. Um, And they followed the Art Institute of Chicago's um, union efforts earlier this year. Um, So, I I mean, I think one thing we could... um, we could say about this is that white collar employees don't have the same job security and the same wages that they once had. So it makes perfect sense that they are going to start unionizing and they're doing it in a very union friendly place. And Aaron, faculty at Chicago State University, they've been voting on whether they will go on strike. What's the latest with that? The issues relate to uh, job um Duties as well as pay. Yeah. It's the latest in a years-long series of misfortunes to happen to Chicago State um, that you know date back to the last decade with uh, the budget impasse that really, uh, really badly affected the university. It's it's just an incredibly sad situation. If they approve a strike, it's not clear how soon or even if they will actually walk out. Is that right? I believe they said that it was going to be a, a three-day thing uh, from Wednesday to Friday. but I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving from a university on the far south side to the far north side, Nader, Northeastern Illinois University, they're in the middle of a controversy over leadership? They are. There's a lot here. Their uh, president, Gloria Gibson, she's the first black woman to lead the university. She is out. She's on her way out. And... um as she she's exiting, she made an allegation that she's uh, facing racial and gender discrimination, that there were some favors, essentially, that were asked of her, one by a board member trying to get his wife a scholarship, mm. and that the, the ethics advisor for the university told her was not allowed, and so she feels like she's being retaliated against. There's more to it. The, the university is really struggling. Enrollment is, is down a lot. And they're not in good shape. And so some people, some some critics of Gibson's are saying, well, that's the reason is because performance isn't good. Yeah. Multiple issues at once, it seems. Definitely not a My good time for the university. Goodness. All right. Uh, United Center concession workers, Nader, they're threatening a walkout while the stadium's right now hosting college basketball fans for the Big Ten tournament. Right. So how much chaos could a concession worker strike cause? Because I'm, I'm seeing just... I'm seeing something chaotic, but what, what is the actual deal? Well, we saw a preview of it earlier this week. They walked out uh, during a Bulls game uh, last Sunday, I believe, and for a one-day strike, concessions were really limited. The menu was small. A lot of concession stands and sort of specialty stands were closed. The two sides are getting back to negotiations on Saturday, but there's this sort of looming threat out there from the union. It's United Here Local 1 that they will walk out at any point um, and and the Big Ten tournament is is well underway. There's games today, mm-hmm. starting uh, an hour and a half ago. There's more games tomorrow, and then the Big Ten championship on Sunday. And so it's it's a big threat for the United Center and mm-hmm. a, a marquee event for the Big Ten. And they're meeting for negotiations. You said Saturday. Saturday, yeah. And and the big issues at hand are healthcare. Um, there's sort of a cap for how many hours. Uh, uh, excuse me, a minimum for how many hours a worker has to work to be eligible for health care insurance. And so the union's very um, much trying to win health care for more of its members and then pay sure. also is, is at stake. Makes sense. The, the Chicago Police Union 
is dealing with some controversy because of its members, Aaron, a a police officer who lied about his ties to the far-right Proud Boys extremist group. He returned to full duty this week. What do we know? Uh, Well, the inspector general found that he uh, had made false and contradictory statements during the investigation, but he's kept his job. He's kept his job. Uh, the, The Southern Poverty Law Center... Uh, criticized Mayor Lightfoot and uh, Superintendent Brown and the Bureau of Internal Affairs Chief Yolanda Talley for mishandling this probe into, and we're talking about Officer Bakker, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, lots, uh, lots there. Uh, the Chicago Police Department is also reopening another investigation into an officer who wore an extremist symbol during a racial justice protest. What are the details of that one? It was a three percenter symbol, and there was a photo of him that I believe CBS News got that's uh, kind of a shawl or a mask covering his face. Obviously, this was during the 2020 uh, George Floyd protests. Um, I was doing you know research as I uh, was preparing for this today. The FBI uh, warned about white supremacists infiltrating police departments in 2006. Uh, Reuters did an investigation last year that um, hundreds of police trainers have ties to QAnon or white supremacist groups. This is a nationwide issue, but it's obviously manifesting in Chicago as well. Just a week ago, Julie, the Fraternal Order of Police (laughs) re-elected its president. Remind us who John Catanzara is and what his time in this role has actually looked like. So John Catanzara, the um, president of the FOP um, in Chicago, has he's no longer a police officer. He resigned um, from the Chicago Police Department. But you do not have to be a an active Chicago police officer to be president. I mean, he's been a very controversial figure. He has um, defended the January 6th rioters mm-hmm. and then apologized for it after being reprimanded. Um, and he's just been a very vocal um, figure who um, has clashed with Mayor Lightfoot oh, very yeah. notably over her vaccine um, mandate, though I believe he personally was was vaccinated. So he was um, reelected to his post, um, but and I think by 57 percent of the vote. So it was a pretty mm-hmm. overwhelming um, vote in his favor. Um, but keep in mind, he is representing not just the active rank and file, but also 6,000 retirees um, who still belong to the union. So he's probably getting a lot of votes from people who um, may be, you know, retired and living in Arizona and maybe don't see policing in the same way that a lot of current police officers do. Yeah, I mean, speaking wrapped up in that controversy that you, you mentioned there, Julie, in 2021, the Police board opened a hearing about whether to fire Catanzara, who was you know, still a CPD member at the time. This was due to alleged misconduct in 18 incidents. So how does all this attention around Catanzara and around officers that have extremist ties, like how does that impact the Chicago Police Union and CPD? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think that a lot of people, um, even within CPD, see Catanzara as a problematic representative of the Chicago Police Department. Um, and the people who were opposing him, the opposing slate, made that argument. They said, you know, look, he, he's not a good figure to represent who we are as a department. Um, so I think that given the role of the FOP in this mayoral race, given their endorsement, of Paul Vallis, um, they're definitely going to be in the news more in the next few weeks. 
All right, Nader, Illinois Secretary of State Alexi Janulius, who also happens to hold the title of state librarian. First of all, did any of who you knew? know that we had did not such know a thing? That. Nope. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I was today years old. Um, well, Janulius introduced legislation to, quote, protect our libraries. Give us the details there. Yeah, we've seen over the past year that there's been these culture wars all across the country. They've manifested more in the Chicago suburbs and um, central and southern Illinois than they have in the city. But there have been these debates about curriculum in schools and books in libraries. And uh, we covered uh, a situation last year in Downers Grove where a, a faction of the Proud Boys, the chapter here in northern Illinois, sort of co-opted this protest against the book uh, Gender Queer in, in the, the high schools over there in the western suburbs. And so this is a response to that from a very much democratic state. A lot of these book protests and book bans are being backed by Republican politicians, by uh, right-wing extremist influencers mm-hmm. or groups like the Proud Boys. And so this is an effort to tie state grants for libraries to the sort of role in keeping free speech and keeping books available in libraries. If a library were to try to ban a book or or bend to pressure to ban a book, they could lose a state grant and state funding um, under this this proposal. Yeah, to that end, the the bill would allow uh, Secretary of State's office to uh, deny state grants to public libraries, including those in schools that don't adhere to the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights, and it says that, quote, materials should not be removed because of partisan or doctrinal disapproval, unquote. And and you've seen other states recently do quite the opposite. They've made it easier to ban books. They've even made it possible to prosecute teachers. I've been seeing so much on banned books come up in my social media feeds. I I don't know about you all. Yeah, it's it's all over, and it's, it's a big issue. I mean, there have been specific books targeted, and we should say a lot of the books that are being targeted are about the LGBTQ community, about transgender people and their lives and their experiences, also about black history. And so it's, I mean, there are very specific books being banned. It's not its not sort of a overall view of what books are in libraries. And they're often the same books mm-hmm. that are on the banned books list decade after decade, you know, Tony Morrison. Just over and over. Just the same books that are targeted. Yeah. Well, Julie, uh, Governor Pritzker backs... This legislation that Nader is, is speaking of here, but in Indiana last week, the Senate passed a measure making it easier for law enforcement to prosecute teachers if material deemed obscene ends up in the possession of uh, a minor. There just seem to be really different perspectives, I feel, around the country on this topic. It's one of those issues that is such a patchwork of legislation, of of uh, you know individual rules passed by school boards um, that in some cases really reflect the values of a certain community um, and in other cases just seem really out of step with what most of the parents in the communities want. And in that case, I think there's just so much um, room for interpretation when you say that you're going to ban, um, you know, books or material that's obscene. Well, what does that mean? Does that that mean? means a lot of Who's things to different people. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, too, here in the area in Chicago, the places that it's played out in the suburbs, a lot of the push has been um, made by this group called Awake Illinois, which, tying it back to our conversation about the mayoral race, 
Paul Vallis has gotten a lot of flack because he spoke at a fundraiser for that group um, last year and has really associated himself with people who have tried to ban books. He's since apologized and mm-hmm. said it was a clumsy mistake, but that group was born out of this idea of, of banning books and, and saying, hey, parents are who know best uh, um, about what kid, their kids should be taught in school. Well, Nader, we do have a, a democratically controlled general assembly. So do you think that this is likely to pass? It seems like it. I, you've seen a lot of a lot of the issues that have been at stake in the culture wars, if that's what we want to keep calling them, over the past couple of years, um, get backing from the or protection, I should say, from the Illinois legislature. So we saw really cemented abortion rights in Illinois. The state legislature also really cemented union bargaining rights earlier this year. And so you would think this is something that would pass, yeah. um, and especially with the governor's support. I mean, Julie, do you think Illinois will be getting national attention if the legislation does pass? I think it will. I mean, it certainly could be um, a model of legislation for other states that um, would want to do the same thing and try to head off some of these more local efforts to ban books. Um, but I do think that, you know, it reflects where um, Illinois is under Governor Pritzker, that he's really moved the state to the left in a significant way. Aaron, you've been looking into how black and, and African-American studies is being taught in Hyde Park schools. What have you found so far? It's incorporated in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I did interviews at the University of Chicago Lab Schools and their elementary and middle schools and also at Kemet Academy High School, okay. um, which is one of the biggest high schools on the south side and a CPS school. Um, at Lab, you know, it's incorporated in a lot of uh, ways you may not even think. Studies of social studies, yes, but also just studies about, um, you know, African ingredients and how they've been adopted into the uh, United States in a cooking course. Um, I mean, yes, they're learning about Rosa Parks and, and what she's done and that kind of thing, but it's also just you know, about the salient aspects in which uh, black culture has affected American lives and also um, just incorporating black subjects to teach any number of other um, subjects as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in Kenwood Academy, you know, CPS's curriculum is uh, set is such that, you know, they learn about 19th century civil rights figures and the Harold Washington election. But the teacher that I spoke to said a lot of it is student directed, you know, that students come to her with the questions about their identities that they're interested in learning more academically. And then that affects um, teaching which makes a lot of sense. These schools are, you know, overwhelmingly black on the South side and people are interested in, you know, their culture and their history and where they come from. And, and teachers can who have degrees in training and teaching these subjects can, can answer a lot of questions for them. Yeah. Well, let's turn to something slightly different here. Nader There's a high school football scandal in Northwest suburban park Ridge. What's yeah. happening at, at Maine South? Maine South high school. They're one of the sort of premier sports, uh, especially football programs in the state, um, big time, big time program, and and have won a lot, uh, including this past season. Um, but as it turns out, an investigation that they conducted themselves, they had quite a few players who had violated residency requirements, and so they weren't actually eligible to play for the team. Mm. They self-reported to the Illinois High School Sports Association, and the investigation ended in basically their entire season being invalidated. They've lost nine victories uh, that they had won, and they're being placed on probation for next year. And this is a, a, a very old story in Chicago, the Chicago area, Chicago sports. 
in high schools, especially in, in the suburbs, mm-hmm. um, sometimes private schools, sometimes we, we've public schools. We've seen this before? Yeah, this is something that kids, families try to get their kids into high-performing, uh, especially athletically high-performing programs, maybe get them more visibility and, and chance at a scholarship. Um, and, and this school was on probation a little over a decade ago. Yeah, this is an elite high school football program, right? It is. Certainly it is. Um, one of one of the top few in the state. I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, we've known for a while now that a NASCAR race is coming to Grant Park over the 4th of July weekend. But it seems the event is now starting to get a little more attention and contention. Right, Aaron? What, what's what's the latest? First off, I think you said shift gears is a pun, which I, I did. And I appreciate you appreciating that you and noticing. By me. Um <laughs> It's going to coincide possibly maybe sort of, we don't know, with Taste of Chicago. Um, the downtown alderman is certainly really worried about that. Um, and the city says in a statement that was provided to the news organization that reported on it that Taste will not coincide with an NASCAR weekend. But certainly uh, third-party planners and alder persons, uh, pertinent alder persons, are concerned about the impact on both of them. Yeah. 42nd Ward Alderman, uh, to your point, Brandon Riley he says that he found out from Navy Pier officials on Monday that the city had planned to move Taste to Navy Pier's uh, Pope Brothers Park. Have, have you two been following this at all? Yes. Which was the news organization that reported on this again? Uh, it might have been Block Club. Yeah, it, it just struck me how yeah, Melody Mercado from city Club, departments Chicago. were just bouncing from one place to another when she was trying to get information about it. Nobody wants to give a straight answer. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just... It's going to be a lot of people coming to downtown Chicago one way or another. Yeah, I mean, what do you folks think? Should Mayor Lightfoot have coordinated with city council more on this? Yeah, I mean, she should have figured this out. It's March, um, (laughs) and I'm no event planner, but I think that if you're planning the Taste of Chicago, you kind of want to know when it's going to be by March if you're doing it for um, July. I mean, I think the interesting uh, conundrum here is you have um, a city, especially a downtown, that is – really in need of tourists. And both of these events are probably going to bring in a ton of people from the suburbs and from Indiana and Wisconsin who are going to enjoy Chicago and spend a lot of money and then go back home and tell their friends about it. So what we want, right? Yes. You don't want to alienate um, either of those um, events. So I think that this is a real boo-boo and uh, Mayor Lightfoot still has to figure (laughs) this out. I mean, Aaron, we've known for months that the race was was coming to Grant Park over the 4th of July weekend. Why are we just hearing concerns now, you think? Because it's Chicago. <laughs> I mean, I think that's basically what you just have to chalk it up to. I mean, the right hand's not talking to the left hand. Nobody sits at the table. It did seem very imperial how the NASCAR race was announced anyway. Um I mean, these are reasons why I leave Chicago every time that an event like Lollapalooza or you're, you're gone in the summer. Or anything happens, I just get out of Dodge. Aaron is nowhere to be found in July and August. <laughs> uh, Grand Park is only going to be open to the public without any events for four days this summer. Uh, the big, the big question here then is, is who are these parks for? Well, I think it's. Grant Park is sort of designed for festivals, right? I mean, I think that, um, you know, I've heard it described that way that, oh, it's, it's closed to Chicagoans. But you could also say, like, look at all these fabulous events and festivals that are going to be taking place in one of the city's, you know, jewels. Um, and I think that, um, hopefully these events won't just be for 
tourists and suburbanites, but for people in the city to enjoy, too. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at all of you. I wonder if there are stories that you feel were underreported this week. It's the third year of the third anniversary of the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, lest we forget. Oh, is today the official Well, I think of it beginning on this Friday week? the 13th in March when everything was going to... Of, of the outbreak or the lockdown? I, there's so many anniversaries Governor I can't Preckwinkle, or Governor Preckwinkle, Governor Pritzker announced the uh, beginning of the state's disaster proclamation on, I believe, Monday, March 8th, uh, 2020. Yeah. And obviously it's going to end, I think... Uh, with a federal declaration, declaration next month or in May, I believe. Yeah. Um, I did. I've interviewed uh, Dr. Arwady of the city's commissioner of public health and um, Emily Landon, the lead epidemiologist at University of Chicago, for a story about it this week. Um, you know, one of the big things that I found out just looking at uh, Chicago Department of Public Health numbers on the mid south side, you know, 35th to 79th streets on the lakefront, only you know less than five percent of the deaths. Uh, from COVID since the pandemic began happened in the last 12 months. And the reason for that, both doctors told me, is Paxlovid, the antiviral treatment that people take. Right. Uh, Emily Landon at UChicago said uh, she would give it to any of her patients at this point who so asked. So it's more readily available now. Certainly, I remember yeah, the time when yeah. we couldn't get our, our hands on, on Paxlovid. Remember I mean, those stories? Very, very sad that so many people died during the Omicron wave yeah. uh, a year plus ago just because it wasn't available, even though it was already present. But it's, oh, yeah. it's really made a night and day change. What's interesting to me is that it's COVID's not really played any role in the mayoral race, as far as I can tell, um, which, you know, it makes sense considering, you know, that it's, it's so much in the background at this point. One point that Landon said uh, that I would be really interested in is the amount that um, you know changing municipal code with uh, regards to ventilation could do in preventing COVID, but also flu, colds, yeah. not breathing stale air. Um, but yeah. Again, bringing it back to those early discussions, I remember talking about ventilation so much in the beginning, as, as at least as far as you know, in schools, right? Our, our kids uh, were breathing all kinds of air at the time when we brought them back from, from being uh, remote schooled. Anything else catch your eye, Nader or, or Julie, that you think maybe deserves some more coverage? Yeah, I think we should be talking about 13-year-old Stephen Jang. He won the Chicago Spelling Bee last oh, week. Oh, yes! Yeah. He, That's right! I, he had, he had Congratulations. some... Congratulations! He had some great quotes. Um, he woke up at 4 a.m. that morning to keep studying, get some, some last uh, words oh, in. Oh, bless him. Started at 8 a.m. By 1.30, he'd, he'd won. He's moving on to the National Spelling Bee. And uh, I, he's an eighth grader, and so um, I thought this quote was great. He said, this was my last chance. I felt like I had to make the most of it, and so I worked very hard. And oh, my gosh, he, I love it. He pulled it off. Do you all remember the word that got you out and whatever spelling that you were in? I think <laughs> Macadam, well, and oh, I still no. can't spell it. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. I think I won. I think I won. And I just, no word got me out, Aaron. Out of I happened. know that I made eye contact with my dad in the audience, and he said later he could see from my expression that I was cooked. All right, Julie, <laughs> here's your moment. Macadam. No, I cannot. I won't oh, even try. Oh. Don't put me on the spot. Oh, no. I know what it is, but I won't spell it. Um, so any underreported stories or maybe you want to tease, Julie, what you're working on this week? Well, actually, there's one story that I saw that I thought was really fascinating. Um, uh, I forgot where I read it, but it was a, about the um, a story in Englewood of the Green Line stop, the Racine stop, which was closed in 1994 for repairs and um, residents there thought it was going to be reopened 
And it never did. And now there is a huge push in the neighborhood to get the funding to reopen it. Mm. And I recently just happened to drive by this stop and it's rusted, it's in disrepair, and it is, um, you know, obviously an eyesore. Um, and I just thought it was a little glimpse into the commitment or lack thereof to yeah. get some of this infrastructure restored. Do you have a thought, Aaron? Is it the one by St. Bernard Hospital? Or relatively close to it. It strikes me. I and believe so. Yeah, yeah. The, the 63rd spot on the red line has access to it, but it doesn't on the green line, which would be such a boon to so many workers who are there. Someone, I was on the green line uh, last summer in Englewood, and they told me the same thing. Mm. There's a mile walk between two stations. I gotta yeah. go check that out. They said that was such a great stop, and it never came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll leave it there for this week, gang. That's Julie Bosman of the New York Times, Nader Issa of the Chicago Sun-Times, and Aaron Gettinger of the Hyde Park Herald. Thank you all so much for joining. Thanks for having Thank me. Thanks. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guthman, and it was edited by Meha Ahmed and Stephanie Kim. Catch every weekly news recap by subscribing to our podcast, or give us a follow on YouTube if you'd prefer to watch. That's a wrap for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.